0: Well, good morning. Great to be together. Um, I've got a few things just to start with. Uh, the first one is, uh, if you um, uh, if you want to give to the work of the ministries here, then there's boxes at the door, and just encourage you to uh, make the most of that. Second thing, uh, I want to underline what Philip said about the night on racism. Uh, it is an important. I want to. We've been doing hot topics here for. 25 years or something, 24 years. And we've done all kinds of topics. And they're all, I think, very important. But this one uh, is particularly important. I want to just suggest that the things that we'll dig into, the things that we'll consider together about this issue uh, go to the very heart of a whole movement that's happening amongst us culturally. And I think if you're over 45, you need to engage on this topic because it's not what you think, if you're under 45, you need to engage on this topic because it's not what you think. <laughs> but for different reasons it's, um, it, and if you're 45, just take the night off. I guess that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> that little moment right there you're in the sweet spot. but um, you know it's very important for us and I want to encourage you to, to uh, get along. How about I pray? <coughs> oh and I th- what Philips, we're against racism All right, this is not about so that's good, very helpful. Let me pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you uh, for the word that you've given us. And we pray, please, today that you might bless this time, that you might cause your word to be a lamp to our feet, that you might give us insight and understanding, that you might shape, mould, change us, that you might grow us. Please, by your Spirit, through your word, work in us today to draw us to be people who know you well, who know how to respond to you well, uh, that you might even cause today to be a significant moment in our lives with you? We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Some years ago, a friend uh, of mine, a man called—I'm going to call him John. It's not his name, but let's change his name just to uh, give a little bit of safety there. A man called John was at church—not this church—but he was the pastor of one of the pastors in a church, and a guest preacher was there. And at the end of his sermon, or sometime during his message, he called people forward to uh, pray and lay hands on people to offer healing. And he uh, called, particularly, forward a man who was in a wheelchair. And he laid hands on this man and told him to get up and walk. And he did. Now, the congregation were amazed. The man himself was thrilled. And my front, friend John tells me, uh, he was part of this ministry for some time, he says it was legitimate. He said, this wasn't some bloke who walked into church looking tired and they gave him a wheelchair just to make him restful and then bring him up the front and get him to It wasn't that deal. He said this was le- legit, it was, uh, he was paralysed uh, and it was an extraordinary experience to be part of. Now what do you do with that? What do you do with that? I'm not asking for the answer now, but what do you do with that? Over the years, there have been seasons in church life in the Christian community and world where people have wanted so much more and wanted to see more of that happening. There have been periods of time where people have felt that church, Christian faith was inadequate if it didn't have those kinds of experiences regularly. There have even been leaders over the years who have presented to us an idea that a Christian life without miracles is somehow deficient. Uh, And church without miracles is somehow deficient. Some have even said, have gone so far actually, to say that the key to winning the Western world is a kind of evangelistic ministry that has signs and wonders connected to it. It was called power evangelism. Not just evangelism where you talk words, but you actually bring the power of miracles and signs and wonders so that we'll win the world through that kind of ministry, that has been a very strong theme in years gone past. But alongside of that, have been, at the very same time, Christians who have been totally dismissive of it all. Not only have they not had a need or desire for the miraculous, and they've felt very content without it and so on, but they've actually been dismissive of the whole idea of the miraculous. In fact, they've gone so far as to say uh, that the whole idea of miracles is a myth, it's a fable. And in fact the Christian accounts, the New Testament accounts that speak of miracles uh, were just expressions of primitive men who were kind of picking up their own ways of expressing things and they weren't really miraculous and in fact these people have gone so far as to say, church leaders have gone so far as to say, if we're going to win the western world, we need to do it by stripping out the miracles. You've got these two completely Contrary understandings of the place of miracles in the Christian life and even the Bible. Now, where do you sit with that? Now, again, I'm not asking for you to respond, but um, do you find yourself going, yes, I think we ought to have more or you think yourself dismissing it or do you sit somewhere in the middle and why and what's all of that mean? Is it just because I've not thought about it? Where do you sit with this? Now, I start here because the passage that we're up to in John's Gospel, the last part of John that we'll be looking at, Uh, this term, John chapter 4, has a miracle at the very heart of it. In fact, the whole reading we've had is just about this miracle. And so it dominates the particular part of the Bible. It's about the healing of a young boy, uh, the son of a, uh, a royal official in the ancient world. And it's pretty much all that is said in this section. So what do we make of it? What do we do with that? Now, the reason I think it particularly matters to wrestle with this is because of two things. A statement Jesus makes and a statement John makes, the author. So look at this with me, have a look there. Uh, In chapter 4, grab your Bible and it's really important to have a Bible to look through and if you uh, you don't have one, we'd love to uh, give you one, come to the info desk, we can uh, work that out or just quietly snaffle someone's Bible next to you um, and uh, take that home. Um, But come with me to John 4, I'm sure that'll be okay, have a look there at verse 48... Jesus speaking. Unless people, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. What's he saying there? The other part that I think added to is a statement by John. It's there in verse forty-four. Started 43, actually. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, of course, they had also been there. Now, you kind of read that and it, I guess it flows over you, but it's quite odd. Jesus' statement about, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, that's quite striking. But this one's quite striking when you dig into it. Jesus has just said, John reminds us, that a prophet has no honour in his home country. His home country is Galilee. But then John tells us, verse 45, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, hang on, I thought you've just told us Jesus says you don't get honour in your own country, but he goes to his own country and they welcome him. What's going on? And in fact it's more intense in the original language, the original language is Greek and there's a word in the Greek that's actually not translated into the English and uh, I'm not sure why but verse 45 actually starts with the word, therefore. So it goes like this, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country, therefore when he arrived in Galilee, his own country, they welcomed him. Do you not find that odd? Now my thing to do with you this morning is to dig into those two statements, Uh, the statement about signs and wonders, the statement about them welcoming Him and as you do that, I'm going to suggest we'll come to an understanding of what miracles are about, how they work and we'll come to an understanding of how we ought to respond to Jesus and how we ought to be careful not to respond to Jesus. I want to suggest it's a deeply important thing to wrestle with these issues. So, let's start with the miracle itself and go through the fact of that. So, verse 43, I've got a map here to help us see something of the, what's going on. Uh, after two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Galilee, see the Sea of Galilee, that's the region of Galilee in the north. See the Samaria, the dot with Samaria, that's where he was in the first part of chapter 4. Uh, He was there with the woman at the well. They've now travelled north up into his homeland. This is where he was born, you see, or where he was raised, around Galilee. And just, if you wouldn't mind just keeping it up there, um, uh, verse 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee. See the little dot there, Canaan? Um, And there was a certain, verse 46, there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. See Capernaum over near the top of the Sea of Galilee. There's a bit of a distance there, you can see it. Now we can drop the slide off. Um, But what you've got here is Jesus goes home to his town, the town of Galilee. The Galileans welcomed him. They've seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the Passover, all the miracles he did there. They were there as well. Once more, he comes to Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. If you've been reading through John's account, chapter 2 reports that miracle where a party was happening, they ran out of wine, Uh, they came to Jesus, Jesus grabs some ceremonial jars full of water and turns them into wine. Extraordinary miracle. That's reported for us in chapter 2. And John reminds us that this is the same town where that happened. He's back in that place. And while he's in that place, this royal official comes to him, uh, whose son lay sick at Capernaum. And verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Notice that, a royal official comes to this hillbilly prophet, Jesus, and begs him to heal my son. Jesus was a a standout. People recognised the power, there was something about Jesus. Well, the miracle takes place. Um, But after verse 48, Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. The royal official, verse 49, says, come down to Capernaum before my child dies. Verse 50, Jesus replies, go. He doesn't even go to Capernaum. He just says, you go back, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when this son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. There's the account of the miracle. And... uh, I just want to reflect with you on miracles in these accounts for a moment. Jesus did miracles. They're not metaphors or fables. John makes very clear that this happened. You'll notice how he reports the the, um, royal official engaging. The royal official says, when did this happen? And they say, at this certain time. And he realises that was the time when Jesus said it. The point that's going on here is that John, the author, wants you to see that this was not just a coincidence. This was not just the man, sponta- the boy spontaneously getting better. Because he's aware that you'll be sceptical about it. And he wants to make very clear that this actually happened and it was astonishing. People marvelled at it, they were amazed. You know, you cannot strip out from the accounts of Jesus the miraculous and have much left. Jesus did miracles, it's integral to the presentation of these first witnesses that He did them. And there'll be others. In chapter 5, Jesus will be back in Jerusalem, a paralysed man, He meets this paralysed man, verse 8, He tells him to get up, take up his mat, and He walks, He's cured. In chapter 6, there'll be the feeding of the 5,000 with just a small play lunch, thousands fed. Um, In chapter 6 later, He'll walk on water, across the lake... In chapter nine, he heals a man who's born blind, and so on and so on. And finally, of course, his own resurrection—he's being brought back to life again from the dead, never to die again. Not just resurrect, not just resuscitated, but resurrected, never to die again—the greatest of all miracles. And you know, in all of this, often the way John and the other gospel writers report these events. They include the scepticism of people around, because they're not just playing some primitive myth, they're reporting what happened, the investigation that occurred, the suspicion, the dismissal by some. Do you know, the reason I put the map up there was that these events didn't happen in a galaxy far, far away, you, you know, they happened at Cana, Capernaum was... a And that's where the man walked from. They'd been in Samaria. And this is not just um, once upon a time. It's concrete, built into the very landscape of the actual land they moved through. And this book, John's book, ends with this statement. Jesus did many more signs. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and by believing that you might have life in His name. John is deliberately reporting these things, that you might be compelled to see the implications of it. And John, the author who writes this, uh, goes to great pains to give the truth of it. Come with me to 1 John, it's worth flipping over here. 1 John, it's a letter that this same author wrote. So we have his Gospel account of Jesus' life, but we have a series of letters that he wrote Uh, from that ancient time as well. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 John, towards the end of your New Testament. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you. You see. Verse 2, this life appeared, we have seen it testified to it we proclaim to you eternal life which was with the father as appeared to us we proclaim to you that which we have seen and heard do you see how he i mean bang i've seen this i've touched it we heard it john is going to extreme lengths to make clear that he's not writing legends he was there as a witness You know, the author, John, lived to an old age. Uh, John was one of the only first followers of Jesus who survived into old age. The others were killed because of their testimony about what they saw and heard, uh, the claims of Jesus. But John lived uh, to a ripe old age and, and that therefore means this, he saw all of them die. More than that, he saw his own brother, James, get killed. By Herod because of his testimony about Jesus. Can you imagine him keeping silent if he knew that this was all myth and fairy tale and legend while he sees his own brother die testifying to it? He then in old age writes his own account because these things were true. It's deeply compelling the very shape of this testimony. We're not just talking now about general ideas, we're talking about the concrete words that these men wrote, seeking to work as hard as possible to say, I saw it, it's true, it's real. This is profoundly compelling. You know, if you're here this morning and you're drifting as a Christian, can I urge you to take notice of this? This is not a fairy tale. It's real. If you're sceptical, if you're someone who's very suspicious and casts it all off, take notice of this. The shape of the reporting, the people who did the reporting, what happened to them in their lives, it has the ring of authenticity about it. It's powerful. If you're still... Look, we run this series called Life. It was mentioned earlier. Come along. There is no news like this. It's powerful and it needs to be powerful because the implications are astonishing. If this happened, as these people reported it as having happened, if Jesus did these things, we are dealing with something unique in all of human history and it's life-changing. The Christian claim is true. It's a radical message... God has entered into our world in the person of Jesus. He is the creator and ruler of all who has become one amongst us. Wow. This is why the miraculous actually isn't out of place and isn't impossible. You know, if there is a God who made the world and sustains the world and upholds the world, you know, not not that there's laws of nature that rules, but God, if there is a God who rules all things and He becomes a man... What do you think He'd look like? He'd be exactly that one who could walk around healing the sick, walking on water. He made it all. It's not irrational to imagine that Jesus would be this kind of person if He is who He says He is. Of course, He can change water to wine. If you're sceptical, it's just worth reflecting, if there is a God, then it's entirely rational to believe in miracles. Because that God is a God who rules nature. The question, therefore, isn't, is it possible? But what does the evidence say? Is the evidence there for it? Now, all of that's to deal with the kind of person who dismisses it and says, you know, we we don't need the miraculous. It's it's out of place. Now, the Bible is very clear. The evidence for it is compelling and powerful. It is an astonishing experience they had. But come back with me to the two statements that I drew attention to earlier. Come with me to John 4 again. I want you to think with me about the way Jesus thought about his miracles. They were real, they happened. But I want you to think with me about how he thought about his miracles. Verse uh, Chapter 4, verse 47. The man heard that Jesus had come into Galilee from Judea. He went to him, begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Jesus says... Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, what does that mean? He's voicing a problem. It's a problem that you need signs and wonders to believe. Now, I guess you might possibly imagine he's saying, you need signs and wonders to believe, so I'll give you some. Might be, you could imagine he's just speaking neutrally. But given the context, that's impossible because you remember verse 44, Jesus is the one himself who pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. In Galilee, he has no honour. And he says of the Galileans, and actually by extension all the Jews, that unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. There's a problem here in the way you're relating to me. Um, And it's part of a larger set of teaching that John records for us of Jesus. Jesus. About the whole way miracles operate in his ministry. Come with me right back to chapter 2. Come back to chapter 2. I mentioned a little while ago that, a moment ago, that that was where Jesus turned water into wine, an extraordinary miracle. And at the end of that, uh, you get uh, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. A number of people believed in Jesus because of the signs. But come over to verse 23. Jesus then went into Jerusalem, south, at the Passover festival. Many people saw the signs he was performing there and believed in his name there. But now look at verse 24. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. What you have is a bunch of people who saw the miracles Jesus was doing in Cana and then in Jerusalem and they believed in Jesus and Jesus went, whoa, I'm keeping you at arm's length. I'm not going to entrust myself to you. What's going on? Jesus did miracles but there was a problem with the people who believed because of the miracles. What you have is this rich and important insight into humankind and Jesus' ministry and miracles. Come to chapter 6, I'll show you there as well. Come to chapter 6. I want you to see that this is actually not just a one-off little piece, it's all the way through. Chapter 6, verse 26. You flipped over there. Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, he said that just after having fed the 5,000 and they've come searching for him. And he says, you're chasing me, you're looking for me, not because you saw the sign, but because you had a feed, because you were fed. The point here is, there's a kind of response to Jesus that's insubstantial. That ought not be trusted. It's the kind of response that's reliant on the miraculous. Now there is a place for miracles, I'll come to that in a moment, but people put their faith in Jesus after He turned water into wine and Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them. He knew that they were being drawn to Him by the wonder-working And then when you're drawn to Him by the wonder-working, that response is unstable and insubstantial. And it proves to be exactly that at the end of chapter 6. You see, as Jesus says in verse 26, you're just coming to me because you've had your feed. And Jesus begins to give them a whole series of teaching that takes them, them deeper. He begins to talk to them about who He is, verse 35. I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Uh, Verse 41, though, look what happens to the Jews who hear all of this teaching. At this, the Jews there began to grumble against him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Do do, do you see? (laughs) They've come to him because of the feeding, and they've seen the miraculous wonders that he's done, and they're going... I'm not not up for what you're teaching. You get it a little bit further. Uh, He begins to teach that it's only his life that gives us life. And verse 52, the Jews begin to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus says, very truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. What's interesting with Jesus' ministry, he hears people grumble about the teaching that he's offering that's kind of... um, challenging and hard and Jesus doesn't kind of go, oh well, I don't want to lose you, let me explain what I really mean so you'll see, he goes harder, he pushes deeper and look what happens then, verse 60, on hearing this many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching, who can accept it? And verse 66, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. These disciples loved him for what he gave them. They loved the miracle worker. They loved the man who fed them and made their life better and healed them. But they didn't want the teaching. They didn't want the harder things. The things about who he is and the exclusive claims of Jesus And the extraordinary thing that he's come from heaven. They don't want that. They don't want the claim that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. People who believed in him because of the miracles, he didn't trust them. There was something insubstantial about their faith. Now, more needs to be said. There's another side to this. But hear this at least. Don't miss it. A Christianity based on signs and wonders is very insubstantial. And a reliance on the miraculous in your life personally, or in a ministry, fails to understand what the miraculous is actually about. You know, let me give you another instance of this in John 11. Jesus raises a dead man, do you remember John, uh, Lazarus? Dead in the tomb, four days, he brings him back to life. Not resurrected, but resuscitated, because he'll die again. Um, John reports that this happens, and then if you look at chapter 11, verse 47, the chief priests, the Pharisees, called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now get this, they don't deny that Jesus has done a sign, a raising of a dead man. What they dispute is what they should do with it. They're not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, You see, it's possible to experience a genuine miracle and not believe. It's possible to believe in the miracle and the man who's done the miracle, but not believe. What does that mean? It means that the kind of belief that matters is not belief that miracles happen, but a conviction that the one who performed it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Is God come to his planet? And taking that step is a different thing entirely. It requires a person to bow the knee to that one, to trust that one, And that's no longer a head thing, it's a heart thing. They knew the thing happened, they didn't have the heart to bow to him. And all of this is a warning to jaded Westerners, which is what we are. People who have grown up in a materialistic, naturalistic culture, rationalistic. It's a warning to us, two things, be cautious about people who... Who pursue God because of the miraculous and let go of the notion that if we could just see more miracles, we'd see more people converted. No. In fact, chase up Luke chapter 16 later, there's an incident there that Jesus talks about where um, a, a, a man who's been cast into hell calls on God to send a man back from the grave to convince his brothers to not turn away from God. And Jesus has Abraham say in that context, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe if they don't believe the Word of God that He's already given us. Chase it up. It's a sobering message all the way through. Do you know, I got this lesson from uh, a movie in 1994 called Speed... Does anyone remember that movie? If you've not seen it, wow, there's a great movie to go and see, right? Uh, Reeves and Sandra Bullock, yeah? Do you remember, does anyone remember Sandra Bullock? Is she, where is she? Is she dead or something? What's happened to her? <laughs> or, or she just gotten old, that's right, and Hollywood doesn't have old women in, yeah, I get all that, okay. The ones preaching to us about not objectifying women, anyway, but um, this old movie where they're caught on a bus with a crowd of people that had a bomb on it and you have to keep it over a certain speed, otherwise it explodes. Well, spoiler alert, sorry about this, they all survive, and um, and Sandra Bullock and Ruth get together at the end of the movie, and uh, before their first kiss, I'm sorry I've ruined the movie for you, right, but before their first kiss, she says to him, um, relationships formed in highly emotional contexts rarely last. It's so profound. <laughs> and it was true, because Speed 2, they weren't together. <laughs> so it's... She was right. Do you know, relationships with God formed through a reliance on the miraculous rarely lasts. You know, I mentioned John, the pastor of one of the pastors in this church. he, he talked about it as a church that very much needed to see miracles happen every week to legitimize their ministries, to make them feel like they're really in touch with the spiritual world and so on. And so they did pursue this regularly. And he said, in all the years that he was there as a pastor, uh, he was only one of the pastors in the team, but he said, in all the years, there was only one legitimate miracle that he actually saw. There were lots of things that were smoke and mirrors. He said, that looked like and had the feel of, but it weren't genuine. He said, but there was one that was genuine. And it was that occasion where the man was asked to get up over his wheelchair and walk. He said, that was a real miracle. But then he said this. After that man got up and walked again, he left his wife and took up with the younger woman. <laughs> Miracles happen. God is the God who can raise the dead. We have experienced them in our church. We've prayed for healing and seen people genuinely healed. But a reliance on those things does not produce maturity, does not deepen a person to follow Jesus as Lord, unless they are understood for the purpose they have. You know, I think this explains a very important feature of John's report of Jesus' miracles. John never calls Jesus' miracles, miracles. Now, if you've got an older NIV, the 1984 NIV, the older translation, you will go, yes, he does, he calls it miraculous signs. And he calls it, Jesus did miracles. What are you talking about? No, 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 no. The word miracles, not in John's Gospel at all. The closest you get to it is in John 4, the word Wonder. But John doesn't use the word miracle or the word for miracle that the other gospel writers use. He only calls them signs, without the word miracle next to it, he just calls them signs or works. Never the word miracle. And I suspect it's possible, and the, the new NIV's corrected that. So if you've got a new NIV, you'll say there's no word miracle. It's just Except on one occasion where I think they just lost their nerve and put it back in again, um, in John 7. But uh, John lived long enough to see the complications that came from people chasing miracles. And so the changing of water into wine, John calls it his first sign. The healing of this child, he calls it his second sign. He uses that language because the significance of Jesus' miracles is not that they display Jesus' power but that they reveal his identity. They're signs, do you see? Not of Jesus as a wonder worker, but as the fulfilment of Old Testament hopes. What was the Old Testament hope? That one day God would send a king, a son who will be born to us, upon him will be the government, He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One day, the King will come back to his world. And he'll come back to his world, Isaiah 61, opening the eyes of the blind. The lame will walk, the deaf will hear. And so the Old Testament anticipates the coming of God back into his world to fix it. And the miracles Jesus performs are signs that... He's that one. He's the Isaiah 9 person, come. He's the king, come back to his world. The feeding of the 5,000 is not just a power display, it's a sign. A sign that the second Moses has come, who fed in the wilderness the people of Israel. Well, the second Moses has come who feeds his people in the wilderness. These are significant experiences which the Old Testament points you to, signs, not miracle. And his greatest sign, in John chapter 2, they ask him for a sign to prove who he is and Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days' time I'll raise it up again. And they think he's talking about the building but Jesus says, I'm talking about my body. You kill me and in three days' time I'll raise myself from the grave as the great sign, not of my power but that I'm the ruler over life and death. I'm the eternal king. You know, friends, this takes a real calibration, recalibration for us, because we're materialists at heart, rationalists. We've grown up in a whole education system that's stripped out any thought that there's miraculous and so on. And so we can tend to, and I say this, we can tend to live in a perpetual insecurity, where I just just need proof again that there is a supernatural realm. I just need proof again that I'm in touch with something spectacular. So give me some miracles. It's possible to live in that constant insecurity and needing proof. It's real, it's real. And think a bit of the miraculous will do that for me. And so people are prone to chase after these things. But brothers and sisters, that will lead you astray. you know, there's a deeper and more immediate application into our context uh, for us on the Central Coast, because at the moment we don't have a great pressure for this, but we have had seasons where it's been there, and it'll come back again. But there's a deeper more immediate application of all of this to us, and it's there in the second statement I wanted to draw your attention to, John 4, it's the statement by John. Come back there. Much more quickly. Do you remember... John tells us that Jesus himself, verse 44, had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his home country. Therefore, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What? Do you remember that little oddity? When you see odd things, press into them. What's going on here? Well, Jesus fed them. He gave them wine to drink. He healed them. They didn't go in for all the larger stuff that he taught about who he was. They didn't really buy the claims that he'd come from heaven, that he was God amongst us, that he was the Messiah, the Lord, the King. They didn't buy all of that. They didn't honour him for who he was. But they loved being fed. And they saw the miracles he did in Jerusalem and welcomed him. Jesus in John 6, you remember, says... um, you're not looking for me because you saw the sign. You're looking for me because you had your fill. You're not looking for me because you saw what the miracle pointed to about who I am. You're looking to me because you got fed. They didn't respond to the truth of who Jesus was and honour Him as God the Messiah come amongst us, the ruler of heaven and earth, my Lord. They didn't respond and honour Him of that. They loved what He gave them. So that when he started to say stuff that was hard, they dumped him. And I think this is the bigger issue. And this is why it matters to wrestle with this part of the Bible. It might be the case that Jesus does, in his compassion, get your attention through a miraculous experience. And numbers of you have had that testimony. And that's because Jesus is compassionate. He healed this man's son. He's compassionate. And sometimes it can get your attention through a miraculous sign. But they're signs, they're not just power displays. They're they're drawing you to see He is who He says He is the Lord, the King, the Ruler. All of the miraculous experiences a person has count for nothing until they respond more deeply to what those things say about who Jesus is, the Lord of heaven and earth. Um, There is a positive point to miracles, but not as a wonder worker, but as an identity marker. And until a person comes and sees Jesus as the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of all things, my Lord, therefore, the miracles have done nothing. You know, here it is the Christian faith will make your life better. For a time. Coming to Jesus will make your life better. Sometimes straight away. You come to Jesus, you'll come into the light. You'll see the truth finally, the lights will go on in life. It's a fantastic experience if you've not had it. You'll actually see how life makes sense, who you are, how you fit, what it's all about. In fact, coming to Jesus and having a relationship with Him will mean you start to put your life back together. You'll be changed from being a broken, fallen person into a remade person where you get health and all kinds of things come that are good. But coming to Jesus will make your life harder much harder. He brings hard teaching. Teaching's not hard but it's hard for people who are immersed immersed in the world. His teaching cuts across the grain of our wants and our values and our world's desires and my personal desires, it cuts across cultural values and so to follow Jesus means to swim against the tide and that's hard. And I want to say As a pastor, and as pastors in this place, we're blessed with many wonderful men and women who take care of our souls. All of those amongst us who operate pastoring us are so concerned that we don't lose any of you. We want you to deepen your response to Jesus. So it's less and less about you and what you get. And more and more about Jesus and who He is that you come to a deeper faith where you see him for the truth of who he is and cannot but live in submission to him. The key here is to bow the knee to him, his word, his way, wherever it takes you because he is Lord and the signs point to that. Being a Christian, it'll be good It's deep and profound in wonderful ways but it will only be only good in heaven. Walking with Jesus now will have lots of good and lots of hardships because it's only through hardships we enter the kingdom of God, says the Apostle Paul. I've got to say personally, I became a Christian uh, as a young man, I didn't grow up in a Christian home and the first five, seven years was torturous, was torturous. All my friends were more fun than the church. I liked hanging out with them. I found Christians really hard work. That changed when I met all of you, right? (laughs) (laughs) But it was really hard work. And the whole, what Christ called me to was so against the grain of my sin and flesh. And the world I was in, it was this constant wrench and wrench. It was hard work. And the key was the conviction that Jesus is who he says he is. Test yourselves this morning. Are you in the faith? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just for you a ticket to heaven? Is he just for you the hope of a better life now? Prosperity and health now? Or have you come to see him for who he is? Have you let the miracles be the signs they're meant to be of who he is, the Lord of heaven and earth? Come back to his world to fulfill all the Old Testament hopes of recreating things, to take us through death into life beyond, through a journey that's going to be hard work. But have you seen him for who he is? And so have you come under his rule? Do you see him first and foremost as your Lord? To take you wherever he takes you. The evidence of that in your life will be that you will believe him and trust him when his word runs counter to the values of the world and your own values. What will you do when he wants for you something you don't want? Will you trust him? Obey him. Now, it's not easy, it's a journey. We're all, we're, you know, I've seen for years what I know He wants me to be, and I've wrestled with Him, under Him, by His strength to grow in that. It's a journey, but I know where I want to go. And repentance constantly marks my life in seeking to live under His Lordship because I want Him to rule. Is that for you what's happening? Let me finish though with the ultimate driver in all of this. Jesus does die for you and rise again. He is Lord. And there's a wonderful piece in John chapter 6 where everyone deserts Jesus because his teachings become too hard. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Are you going to leave me as well? And do you remember what they say? Where else would we have to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? That was me for seven years clinging on there's nowhere else to go I'm stuck with you Jesus and it continues to be my hope now of course let it be yours because this one has died for you he will take you home but the journey he takes us through is not easy continue to bow the knee day in and day out to the one who truly is Lord let's pray Heavenly Father we do ask please that that might be the case for us Help us to recognize the truth of who you are. Let please the signs work in our lives to point us to your lordship. Help us trust Jesus as our master, as our ruler. Let our faith not be shallow. Let it deepen through all the ins and outs of life, we ask. Please let it be the case that none of us are lost. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.